Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Micah chapter 6, and I'm beginning with verse 1. It says, Hear now what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, O you mountains, the Lord's complaint, and you strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a complaint against his people, and he will contend with Israel. So chapter 6 It opens like a court scene, and the court case is God versus the people, uh, the people of Israel, that is. And uh, God has a complaint against his people. And this chapter here, really, you could title it, uh, well, you could title it God's Complaint Against His People, but really, this is who is like God pleading with his people. And uh, and so, like I said, though, chapter 6 begins with God's complaint against his people. If you have a King James Version, the Bible is, says, your Bible says controversy. God has a controversy with his people, which is really a quarrel or a dispute. And it comes from a verb meaning to conduct a lawsuit or a case against someone. So God is bringing a case against his people here in chapter 6. Now, it's interesting, that word controversy from the King James, it's used in two other references where God has a complaint or a controversy with his people. And they're both in Hosea chapter 4 and in Hosea chapter 12. Only, the only time those verb, that verb is used. But he also has an even greater controversy with all the other nations. In fact, as it says in Jeremiah 25, verses 31 to 33, God has a controversy with all flesh. Again, the same verb, uh, verb being used there. You know, our God is a holy God, right? In the Bible it says, Be holy, for I am holy. And Second uh, Chronicles 19.7 says this, Now therefore, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Take care and do it, for there is no iniquity with the Lord our God, no partiality, nor taking of bribes. And because God is a holy God, He requires holiness, period. And it doesn't matter who you are, He requires holiness. Um, but here in chapter 6, God is pleading with His case against His people. And you know, if you've seen any court case, or maybe you've been involved in a court case, in just about any court case that I know of anyways, witnesses are called to the stand. And here in chapter 6, God calls the mountains as his witness. You may say, that's kind of odd. Why would God call, speak to inanimate creation as his witnesses? And the reason why is because if you think about it, those mountains have been there. They've been there. Uh, they, they have memory, so to speak. Um, they've been around. They've seen both parties of the trial that are involved here. They've, they've, uh, maybe you've heard this phrase before, you know, um, if these walls could only talk, the tales they would tell, you know. And, and, you, and you think about it, just whatever's taken place in that place, man, if the walls could tell, man, the tales they would, uh, they would tell. Well, the mountains were a witness to God's righteous acts even before the land, the nation of Israel was in the land there. And they were witnesses to the people's acts throughout their history in the land. So they're really, they've, they're witnesses. That's, that's what this is picturing here. Um, and so now here in verse 3, God pleads with his people. So in verse 3, he says, O my people, 
What have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Testify against me. God's asking the children of Israel, what, what did he do that would cause them to grow tired of him? What did he do that would cause them to become impatient with him? You know, people back then, obviously, because he's speaking about this, but even Christians today, they grow weary of living for Jesus. I don't know about you, but sometimes, you know, it's hard sometimes. You you get tired of, of, of doing what you're supposed to do. You get tired of following the Lord. And, you know, the thing is, in Hebrews, the Bible recognizes that. And in Hebrews, we're told not to grow weary in doing good. Well, sometimes people grow weary. They grow weary of living for Jesus. Or... He's done something or allowed something that, that's angered them. That's, and, and so then it's like, well, I'm no longer following you because you've, you allowed this to happen in my life. And, and so be, people become bitter and angry against God. And so this is what's happened with the people of Israel. They've, they've grown tired, tired and weary of living for God. And so verse 4, God's pleading with him. He says, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. He says, I brought you up from the land of Egypt. That word to bring up, it's really to pick up someone who's in a lower place and to lift them up out of that lower place. And of course, they were in a low place at that time, right? They were in bondage in Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. And God picked them up out of that low estate and brought them up into the promised land. Psalms 40 verse 2 says, He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. And all of us, you know, we were in a low place before we had a relationship with Jesus Christ. And he took us and he picked us up out of being slaves to sin and slaves to death and slaves to unrighteousness. And he he brought us up and put us, he established us, he put us on a firm foundation. God not only brought them up from the land of Egypt, but he redeemed them from the house of bondage. And to be redeemed someone basically means to pay a ransom for them, to deliver them from oppression or from slavery. And the fact that they were ransomed by him means that he purchased them, it means that they no, they're no longer their own, but they're his. And, and then on top of that, he didn't just deliver them from bondage and then cut them loose to fend for themselves in the wilderness and in Canaan. I mean, it's one thing, you know, you release someone from, from slavery and then you just send them out in the wilderness and go, well, help, you know, have fun, you know, hope you make it. He didn't do that. He sent before them Moses and Aaron and Miriam, who would be shepherds by whom God led his people like sheep. And, you know, as shepherds, Moses... Aaron and Miriam led the children of Israel by going before them. In those days, in the days of the Bible, the shepherds would go before the sheep. They would lead the sheep. I don't know if they still do it today. I don't know if they they lead or if they drive them with, you know, whatever. I don't know. Um, But in John 10, verse 4, Jesus talking about shepherds, he says, And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And so God just didn't release them and from, you know, bring them up out of Egypt and then and set them free from slavery and then just let them fend for themselves. He gave them shepherds here, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. And Moses, of course, he's the lawgiver. And he's the one who taught the children of Israel about God. 
What does God require? What is, who is God? That, he, he taught them about God. And Aaron was appointed the priest, and he was there to atone for the children of Israel, to pro- provide those, those sacrifices for the sins of the people. And then Miriam, and it's interesting, she's not mentioned too much in the Bible, but Miriam was the prophetess. She was the sister of Moses, right? And she's the one that led them in singing praises to God, taught them how to worship the Lord God. You know, as you and I have been set free from bondage of sin, God's not left us to fend for ourselves. You know, you get saved, you get into a relationship with the Lord, and, and, and it's not like it's like, okay, you're saved, you're not going to hell, good luck, hope you make it through life. He doesn't do that. He doesn't leave us as orphans, but he gives us the Holy Spirit to dwell with us, to shepherd us, to lead us, and to guide us. And not only that, but Paul writes this in Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. He says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So God's given each one of us such, he's given us the Holy Spirit and he's given us the church. He's given us fellowship. And, and, and he's raised up people in the church to lead and to guide us. But God here is not finished with his case. He continues in verse 5. O my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, canceled, uh, counseled, excuse me, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, from Acacia Grove to Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. Now, if you've read that in the book of Numbers, you know that Balak was the king of Moab, and he wanted to curse the children of Israel. And so he hired a prophet by the name of Balaam to curse them. And the thing about Balaam was, Balaam was, he loved money. And he was willing to curse God's people for the money, but God prevented him from cursing them. And instead of letting Balaam curse them, he had uh, Balaam bless the children of Israel. And Balak was getting frustrated. He'd bring them up to a mountain and go, there's the children of Israel, you can see them, curse them. And God would say, you're not cursing them. And he'd pronounce a blessing. He'd go, oh, man. And then he'd take them to another hill. Here's another. You can view them from here. And, and he did it several times, trying to get Balaam to, to curse the people. And God would not allow Balaam to do it. You get the impression that Balaam would have if God hadn't stopped him. Well, Balak tried unsuccessfully to get the children of Israel cursed. And that's because even, I mean, God loved Israel and he would not allow them to be cursed. And so as Balak got frustrated with that, Balaam realized that God was not going to allow him to curse them. And so he said, well, you know what? I can't curse them, but there's a way you can get them. And he basically told Balak how that they could infiltrate the children of Israel and how they could how they could defeat them in another way instead of just cursing them and attacking them and he said bring your women the Moabite women and tempt the men of the children of Israel and 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 marry into them and 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 have them worship your idols and that's exactly what happened and it's it says here in the new King James it says that the Acacia Grove in the King James version your Bible might say Shittim um that was where the children of Israel intermingled with the women of Moab and started worshiping their idols. And, and then it says from Acacia Grove, so from that point of where they, they fell into idolatry and they fell into sexual immorality, from that point to Gilgal. And Gilgal was the last stop for the children of Israel before when they were in the wilderness before uh, heading into the land of Canaan. It was the last camping place. It's where God rolled back the reproach of Israel and he renewed the covenant with them. 
And so what, what, what's being spoken here, God loved Israel during the time that others were trying to curse them. And even when they turned away from him, he still loved them. And he still renewed a covenant with them. His love for them never ceased. And so God, you can just sense, God's just pleading with them. Listen, I redeemed you. I, 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 I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I gave you shepherds. I even loved you during the time when people were trying to curse you and when you yourselves were walking away from me. I still loved you. And now in the courtroom, the children of Israel have a chance to respond to the charges. Verse 6, this is the people responding to God. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What's their response? What does God expect of me? God's never going to be satisfied. He's too demanding. Listen to the sarcasm. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Man, if I sacrifice my own son, would God still, basically they're saying God still wouldn't be sacrificed or satisfied no matter what I do. And so God responds to them. Verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And if you catch that, he says, he has shown you. That's past tense. Hey, I've already revealed to you what I require of you. I've already revealed to you what is good. And the first thing he says is to do justly. To do justly or to do justice. It could also be translated to do what is right or to do what is of due order. What, what you're supposed to do. What what is due for you to do. <laughs> D-U-E is the word. So first in our relationship to God, we're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, right? That's our first thing that we're to do. That's our first responsibility to do good is to love the Lord God with everything we have. And if Jesus is our Lord, he's due our heart. D-U-E. <laughs> then in relation to fellow man, there's all kinds of things that God has spoken to us about what is how to do justly, how to do justice, how to do what's right and what's good. He says in uh, the New Testament, it says, Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. That's in Romans thirteen seven. We're also told, owe no one anything except to love one another. That's what you should do. You should be loving one another. Romans 13, 8. He says, do not, or excuse me, in the Proverbs, it says, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in the power of your hand to do so. That's in the Old Testament. Hey, when, when, don't withhold. If you know that you have the ability to bless someone, you, 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 know, you see a need, meet it. If you're able to meet that need, that's what you should do. That's the good thing to do. That's the just thing to do. In the New Testament, Paul speaks even about the marriage relationship. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise, all, uh, and likewise also the wife to her husband. There's even responsibilities to do just in your marriage. 
these are all ways to do what is right. I mean, we could go through there. That's just a, that's just a sampling of them. There's all kinds of scriptures. God has already shown us what to do. And then he says to love mercy. Now notice he doesn't just say to be merciful, but to love to be merciful. There's a big difference there. Mercy, what does that mean? It means kindness. It means pity. It means love. So there's all kinds of scriptures about loving mercy, to love mercy, to be merciful. In Psalms 37, verse 26, it says he is ever merciful in lens. Psalm 112.4 says he is gracious and full of compassion. Psalm 112.9 says he has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. Jesus said in Matthew 5.7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Man, having being compassionate for people, being kind to people, lending to people. Jesus also told the parable of the merciful master. I don't know if you remember that story. There was a servant of his that owed a debt that the servant couldn't pay. And Jesus, or excuse me, the master, he had mercy on that servant. And he forgave him of that debt that he couldn't pay. And then that same servant went out and he found a fellow servant that owed him not even as much as what he owed the other, the master. And he was unmerciful towards that fellow servant who owed him much less. And and the point that Jesus is making in that parable is to forgive others as you've been forgiven. That's being merciful. That's being extending mercy to people as you've been extended mercy. Peter adds this, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tender-hearted. Be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for evil, excuse me, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. These are all aspects of mercy. And again, we're to love mercy. And then God adds this, to walk humbly with your God. And that refers to our continual behavior, no matter where you go. In other words, how you live your life, day to day, no matter where you are in public or in private, we're to walk humbly with our, <clears throat> excuse me, humbly with our God. That word humbly comes from the root word to humiliate. And so it's living in a state of humility and meekness. Again, he has shown us how to walk humbly with our God. James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. Jesus said, Assuredly, in Matthew 18.4, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. We, if you were here Wednesday night, we were, we were actually in Matthew chapter 18 and talking about this passage of Scripture. And we, we discussed what does it mean to, to, to be humble as little children. It was, a, it was a great discussion. But we're to be like little children, humble and not proud. In Luke 14.10, Jesus was telling his disciples, hey, if you guys get invited somewhere to eat, don't pick the seat of honor actually pick the lowest seat in the place, the, the place of the most humility, the place, the, the most humbling position. And, and, uh, and then, you know, hopefully, hopefully they'll pick you up and they'll say, hey, wait, what are you doing sitting in that place? I want to put you in this place of honor. It's a lot better than promoting yourself, 
putting yourself in a seat of honor and then them going, oh, oh, sorry, there's someone more important than you. Can you go sit in that seat over there? And, and the whole point that Jesus was trying to get about, uh, trying to get across is be humble rather than be being humbled. Don't promote yourself. Jesus said, he who is great among you, let him be as the younger and he who governs as he who serves. In Romans 12, 10, Paul wrote this, an honor giving preference to one another. And in Philippians 2, verse 8, Paul described humility this way. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Peter adds this, 1 Peter 5, verse 5. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. It's interesting. It says, clothe yourself with humility. I don't know if you've heard that phrase, the clothing makes the man. You know, isn't it interesting? You get new clothes, you feel, you feel different about it, you know, and, and you've probably heard about dressing for success. I remember back in the 80s, and I, I never wear ties. I, I'll wear them to a funeral or a wedding, but that's about it, you know. But uh, I, I hate wearing ties. And, uh, but, you know, I remember when they had the power ties. Remember that? You wear, you wear a power tie. It makes a <laughs> bold statement about you. And, uh, and the, the clothing makes the man. Well, here Jesus says, yeah, go ahead. And, and the clothing does make the man. But instead of dressing for power or dressing for success, dress for humility. Man, clothe yourself in humility. What is humility? Well, I'll tell you what true humility is. It's basically thinking rightly about yourself thinking you, you don't think you know you don't think greater of yourself than you really are and here's a tip if you have to tell someone how humble you are it's a pretty good indication that you're not humble but instead full of pride it's interesting I, I've had people come up to me and tell me how humble they are and I'm, I'm you know and I, I just like okay hmm, that's nice you know that's wonderful and I'm thinking in the back of my mind man you just don't realize how that comes across. <laughs> you are so full of pride. <laughs> You're not humble. What well, is the bottom line is the bottom line in all of this, what God required of them, it wasn't a mystery. It was all there in throughout scriptures, the old Testament and the new Testament. So what was the problem? It wasn't a problem of knowledge. It was a problem of doing it. That was Israel's problem. They knew what they were to do, but they refused to do it. So they're guilty. And so now that Israel has been silenced, God speaks once again. Verse 9. The Lord's voice cries to the city. Wisdom shall see your name. Hear the rod. Who has appointed it? So the answer here is God has appointed what they're going to go through. God has appointed a punishment for them. But it's not because he's hard to please. It's not because he's never satisfied or because he somehow failed. It's because Israel failed God. And so now they need to hear the rod. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Hear the rod. What does that mean? Well, the rod is the rod of his punishment, the rod of his chastisement. They're going to they're gonna, they're gonna be 
inflicted with pain, rods associated with pain, you know, uh, spare the rod and spoil the child. You know, the rod just talks about pain. The, the, it, it means pain. And they're going to be experiencing pain. And so God says, hear, hear the rod. Well, what does that mean? In a book that C.S. Lewis wrote about the problem of pain, he says this, we can rest contentedly in our sins and in our stupidities. And anyone who has watched gluttons shoveling down the most exquisite foods as if they did not know what they were eating will admit that we can, even, we can ignore even pleasure. But pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So they didn't listen to him when things were good. They didn't, they didn't listen to their conscience. He whispered to them. He spoke to them. He sent prophets to them. They didn't listen. So now they're going to hear. They're going to hear through pain. And God's now shouting to them through the rod of his discipline. Verse 10, it says, Are there yet the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked? And the short measure that is an abomination... Shall I count pure those the things uh, shall I count pure those with the wicked scales and with the bag of deceitful weights short measure wicked scales deceitful weights all those have to do with cheating people financially but I don't think it's just financially cheating people but also being in unjust in general not rendering to people what they're due making sure you get the better end of the deal at the expense of others. Verse 12. For her rich men are full of violence. Her inhabitants have spoken lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. You know, not only were they cheating through dishonest tra- transactions, but they were using, also using violence to achieve their goals. And they were dishonest and deceitful with each other. That was the condition of Israel in that time. Verse 13, Therefore, I will also make you sick by striking you, by making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied. Hunger shall be in your midst. You may carry some away, but shall not save them. And what you do rescue, I will give over to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread the olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil, and make sweet wine, but not drink wine. In other words, whatever they gained through unjust means, or through being unmerciful, or through their pride, whatever they gained by it, they and they would get they would gain, but they would not be blessed with it. They'd lack satisfaction. And they'd lack joy. You know, satisfaction and joy, those are blessings from the Lord in our lives. And the thing is, what God's telling them is that he can't bless sin. Oh yeah, they might accumulate things. They, they might get what they're wanting to. They might get their way and everything. But in the end, it's not going to fulfill them. It's not, they're not going to have that joy of the Lord. They're not going to have that contentment with godliness. Because they haven't done it as God ins- uh, prescribed to them. Verse 16, for the statutes of Omri are kept. All the work of Ahab's house 
are done, and you walk in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. Therefore, you shall bear the reproach of my people. You know, instead of doing justly, instead of loving mercy, and instead of walking humbly with their God, they walked in the ways of the wicked kings of Israel. And they mentioned these two particular kings. Now, Omri, he was a very wicked king. And in, in, in uh, 1 Kings 16.25, it says, Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did worse than all who were before him. I mean, he was just like the rottenest of the rottenest, the baddest of the bad. But he had a son named Ahab. And listen to what it says about Ahab. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. So in other words, yeah, Omri was a bad guy and he did really, really bad. But then he had another son who actually did worse than he did. And, and it was just a progression of, of, of terrible, wicked kings. And God's saying, you're following in their footsteps. You're, you're doing what they're, you're, you're following their lead, basically. And as a result of their sin, they're going to bear the reproach of the Lord. You know, for you and I as believers, those things that God requires in verse 8, they're only possible really in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. I mean, you can kind of try to do some. You can try to kind of try to be humble or try to be just, to, to do justice to people or, or to be merciful to people, but you can't do it all. It's impossible. It's impossible without a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Why? Because we need the power of the Holy Spirit to enable us to do it. You can't do it apart from him. To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. In fact, the very essence of humility before God, it, 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 the very essence of it, like I said, is, is, is thinking rightly about yourself. In other words, recognizing and acknowledging that you're a sinner, that there is nothing good in you. That you're, that you're not all that you think you are. The very essence of humility is humbling yourself before him and asking for forgiveness, recognizing that you need a Savior. And then in humility, turning from the path you're on. Turning from the thing that you, uh, you know, I'm doing this, I'm going to do this stuff to the Lord, what do you want me to do? I'm forsaking all that and I'm going to follow you. That's, that's true humility. And when we do that, that's when our humble, our walk with God in humility begins. It has to start in a relationship with the Lord. You know that Jesus said that his burden is easy. I mean, his yoke is easy. His burden is light. But it's only as you and I submit to him and, and invite his Holy Spirit into, his heart, into our hearts to, to guide us and to lead us. That is chapter 6. We're ending actually kind of early, but uh, that's okay. It's a cold day today, so... Um, you can go home and start getting warmer earlier. But uh, um, I know the kids aren't done yet anyway. So, But why don't we stand up and uh, let's pray about this as a fellowship, as, as, as people that love the Lord. And, and uh, you know, the thing is, we're to respond to what the Spirit speaks to us. And I, and I believe, you know, even going through this for myself, reading through that, it's like, wow, Lord, you have shown us. You have shown us. We don't have an excuse. He has shown us what is good, what to do, and how to love mercy, and how to walk in humility. And the thing is, you know, I, I just want to encourage you, because I, I know for believers, sometimes we can grow weary doing good. 
And so let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for each and every person here today. Lord, I thank you for their relationships with you. And Father, this morning, Lord, as you've pledged your case before the, the people of Israel, how they have grown weary of you, how they've become impatient with you. Father, we confess that sometimes we grow weary. Sometimes we grow impatient, Lord God. And I pray that you would forgive us of that. Lord, you've done so much. You've brought us up out of the miry pit, the miry clay of our own sin. You set us on a firm foundation on you, Lord Jesus, the foundation of our faith. And Lord God, you have not left us as orphans, but you've given us your Holy Spirit. And you've given us the church, Lord, the, 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 the leadership of the church to guide us and to, to instruct us. And Father, I thank you, Lord, that, Lord, you've loved us even when we've walked in disobedience to you, Lord. Lord, you've never forsaken us. And Father, I, I just pray for those that are maybe even today just growing weary in their relationship with you just tired of serving you, feeling like you demand too much. You've put too much on their plates for them. Father, I pray, Lord God, that they would repent of that and that they would just turn to you in humility, Lord God. Father, I know that you love each one of us, that you died on the cross for each one of us. You paid the price, the ultimate price for us. Lord, that our lives are no longer our own because you ransomed us. And Father, I pray that we would walk, we would live our lives, no matter where we are in public or private, in humility with you, Lord God. Thank you that you've given us so much in your word to teach us how to please you, how to do just, Lord, how to love mercy and how to walk humbly. And Father, now it's up to us to do those things. But even in that, Lord, we thank you because even in that, you haven't just said, okay, now go do it. Lord, you've given us your Holy Spirit to guide us, to correct us, to convict us, to encourage us in those things and to enable us and to equip us to do those things. Lord, you've done so much for us. We thank you and we love you. And Lord, I pray for anybody here today that maybe is discouraged in their walk or feeling like giving up, Lord. I pray that your Holy Spirit even now is, Lord, speaking to their hearts to repent and to turn back to you because you've done so much for them, you love them, and you've never stopped loving them, Lord. So I thank you for this morning for your word. Lord, I pray your blessing on your people, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.